Hello, and welcome to the historical part of the Age of Empires Definitive History Podcast. This episode is going to take a look and examine the ascent of Egypt's campaign history, the history behind the campaign. Uh, as always, this is a show that runs down the Age of Empires campaigns from every game in the franchise, and then takes a look, look at the history behind them. The premise for the first campaign in the Age of Empires franchise is to experience, quote, the story of the world's large, longest continuous civilization. As the guiding spirit of Egypt, settle along the fertile Nile River, wage war, and unite the kingdoms of Upper and Lower Egypt with Narmer, build the great monuments of Hatshepsut, and venture into foreign lands to conquer the Nubians and Canaanites. End quote. With this in mind, we'll focus on uh, this podcast on the aspect of the campaign outlined in the introduction. So let's begin by going back to the very beginning of human history. What does the Nile River look like in 8000 BCE when the game starts? It's a time when the uh, Paleolithic period is drawing to an end. The Paleolithic period is mostly defined by humans' use of stone tools. Um, It is hard to believe for most of us that throughout human history, stone tools were actually the basis upon which uh, most technology occurred. Um, this, this is actually a really fascinating thing for me to kind of ponder and consider is that uh, as much as now we have our technological developments, you know, our phones, our, uh, <laughs> our phones, our internet, our computers, all those things, um, it's, it's very difficult to kind of try to bring yourself to to the past and to how it was to live in those times right where you know stone technology was used um you know in some ways technology accelerated uh, at a very very rapid pace um within the last couple centuries even within the 20th century especially military technology um has far surpassed anything that lay before it um so much so that you know i think that's something we always ponders uh we're kind of at a point in human history now that the military arsenals of countries are uh, quite potent and quite uh difficult to um really grasp like if you wrap your mind around the fact that humans as a species can wipe themselves out nowadays and that was never popular or possible for most of human history um you know it's it's a question to ponder and a question to think about um during this time you know this 8000 bce period uh the nile valley or the nile delta and the area that surrounded was inhabited uh since it naturally gave rise to resources needed to survive um, while we may think of Nile River as a small area in an otherwise large grove, the rate of travel interactions with cultures meant that any prehistoric ruler of, e- of the Nile was in some ways the ruler of their own little isolated world. Um, so just think about that, right? The Nile Delta, the very, was well, the northest part of the Nile, but it's actually the lowest part of the Nile because uh, m- much of the water runs from East Africa, uh, kind of down the valley towards the north towards the mediterranean right um and because of this uh, it's kind of natural that people would settle near large bodies of water uh 
Um, the Nile especially had its own little, you know, uh, I suppose advantages in the fact that uh, anyone kind of in that area uh, was able to grow and harvest crops uh, in a way that was very unique to the region. I'm not going to quite go into the specifics of the agriculture, um, although, you know, possibly maybe that's something people might be interested in. Um, and yeah, and, and essentially because this was such an important strategic uh, location it's just natural that people humans in 8000 uh, bc before the common era um so about 10,000 years <laughs> before when you're li- before this podcast uh that you're gonna listen to um it's quite astounding to think that this was the region that people would naturally settle uh, and you know controlling this region meant survival and meant the ability to go kind of go to this agricultural type um yeah, this agricultural type of living, uh, as opposed to the hunter-gatherer societies that preceded it. Um, and also probably the reason that eventually uh, the Stone Age kind of fell away is because as soon as you get agriculture, um, you f- you find, okay, well, we need specific tools to help with agriculture, and so technology develops. Um now, if we take a look at that at 8000 BCE, right, where the campaign uh, in the first Age of Empires game takes place, this idea of a great Egyptian civilization is so far removed from the possibility, right? Um, I think anything when we look at prehistoric human history, this is kind of part of it. Um, we have very little to go off of. Um, it's a lot of agricultural digs, right? And then theories being presented upon the findings of those agricultural digs. But, you know, a hundred percent people at that time were definitely just, they had their own little area and they're just trying to survive. Um, and they probably did not see much of the world outside of them, especially when, um, you know, hunting, gathering, kind of stopping the prominent mode of trans uh, prominent mode of feeding yourselves. Uh, and instead they want to stay in one area. So they're probably just trying to survive, you know, hunt what's near you and then, as agriculture develops, just, just try to uh, maintain yourself off of that. Uh, now, as the campaign really quickly skips to 3000 BCE, and uh, the reason for skipping to 3000 BCE is, uh, you know, I, that's when, you know, the idea of Egypt, a, a civilization, a great civilization that lasts many millennia, that's, that's when you can actually start seeing it. This was kind of an idea of like, oh, the Nile's being settled, and then for over 4,000 years, you know, this this one area of the Nile is being settled. Um, and it takes time, it takes lots of time, right? We don't have that, there's not that many people, humans in general, like the sheer amount of humans is so small that larger areas of land can't simply be organized in a way by a community to be taken over because there's so little people. Um, in the period from around 7,000 to 4,500 BC, during the Neolithic period, right? So we have the Paleolithic period, uh, or some called the Old Stone Age, and then we have the Neolithic period, which is the New Stone Age, or the very last period in which of the Stone Age, right? Um, where humans after this will start developing tools, um, you know, kind of like in the games itself, where uh, you go advance from age to age. Uh, in the same way, this is kind of this Neolithic period is kind of the last bastion of that Stone Age. Um, and in this period, the 7,000 to 4,500 BCE, um, the Nile begins to have its earliest permanent settlements appear. 
um, in some ways, yeah, this period reflects that gap between those missions and the campaign, right? This is this is the period that isn't really talked about in the campaign, um, but uh, it it's something to think about because this is this is a growing period that isn't talked about much, but it's where we start getting those earliest permanent settlements appearing um, and allowing for population mingling, population growth. Uh, so uh, without permanent settlements, the ability to sustain these larger populations uh, while switching to agriculture type um, type of living as a source of food is just not, not there, right? Um, if you're harvesting or creating crops for yourself, that's one thing. But kind of as the population grows, then you can start um, having a surplus of food um, and then possibly have conflict. But that's, it's kind of interesting when you think about, right, that um, in many ways, when you were a hunter-gatherer society, uh, you would not require, um, like, you'd have actually a lot of free time, as, as I remember a professor of mine used to joke, is that you had about uh, the same amount of free time as a modern university student, in that 20% of your life is actually uh, doing <laughs> work, and the other 80% you can lounge around. Um, and so like, why would we ever switch from that to like agriculture that requires daily hard work, uh, just to keep crops going, just to keep, keep providing food. And the reason was, uh, security, safety, and stability, right? The idea like, oh, we can now stay here. Um, also our food is, it's more reliable, right? We're not just following an animal and hoping to feed off, uh, you know, hunting that animal, um, because we can grow our own food now, it's a little more reliable. And so for that reason, people were like, okay, I'd rather stay in one place and work a lot. Um, and then, you know, how do we get from there to starting build cities and civilizations? And the idea is, well, now we've, we're a little group making food. And oh, wait, you know, this small part of the population can now sustain more. You can create more food, right, than the amount of people you have uh, part of this population which therefore means you can start taking the people away from food and have them start focusing on other things. For instance, craftsmanship, right? Creating tools um, for this little community or uh, maybe being defender or soldier um, for the community, right? These people can start training, defending communities or whatever. Um, whatever else eventually leads to bureaucracy and uh, having politicians and leaders and stuff like that because we have now enough surplus of food in this little area to sustain that. Um, so yeah, when when there's permanent settlements uh, and agriculture, be, you have a surplus of food. Um, you can find you can finally see the the the, the start or the creation of conflict um, because there are now resources on both sides. Um, and while you know, if we live in an ideal world, the people that uh, on both sides are meant to just simply protect the community. Um, it's it just becomes easier for a lot of people to be like, hey, that that little group over there is growing a lot of crop. Uh, I want some of that food or whatever it is, and then it, this is how we get conflict. Um, so now, if we look at the campaign itself, the campaign that we looked over uh, in the kind of co episode for the Ascent of Egypt campaign, uh, around the time of the skirmish skirmish mission in the game. Uh, in the year 3800 BC, remember BC, uh, anything before the common era goes down in number as opposed to up. So 
it goes 8,000, then we have our 7,000 to 4,500 period, and then we have our 3,800 period where the skirmish uh, mission takes place. Uh, this is kind of the, the point where the habitus of the Nile Valley or the Nile Delta, kind of that fork in the Nile, uh, closer to the Mediterranean, they begin to form a cohesive civilization. Uh, new inventions, such as the use of copper tools, uh, mark an important part in the dawning of this Egyptian civilization of this 3,800 BC period. Uh, uh, so, you know, this point, uh, kind of before we get it into the civilization that was so significant, right, this Egyptian civilization that was created, created in the next, uh, the, to like influence the world in the next thousand of years, we kind of need to take a stake, uh, step back and look at the significance of time uh, that it took for these regions to be able to have enough food from agriculture to begin favoring other tasks. Um, you know, like this, I just really want to stress this is it's kind of mind blowing that it, you know, before we get to a point where like, oh, okay, we're fighting overland 4,000 years, right? Maybe double, double the common era or whatever you want to call it takes place where people are just simply like living day to day and, uh, you know, having agriculture getting food and all that stuff. Um, and so like the speed of technological change actually seems very slow, right? 4,000 years. Uh, and now just now we're getting to that copper, uh, period, right? The copper tool period, uh, the bronze age slowly approaching, um, you know, at, at this time where there uh, were not that many permanent settlers in the region, um, you know, people kind of survived without impacting the rest of the world. I think that's another aspect we have to take into account. Um, uh, these, this like fourth and third millennium before the common era, uh, kind of the interactions with other groups would cause growth for some and extensions for others, right? Um, as we were talking about, right? Agriculture, you're thinking agriculture, you're thinking of, oh, we have more food. Um, maybe we have more people, maybe less food. Okay, well, if we want food from that other group, we have more people, so we'll take over that other group, and then the other group either gets assimilated or annihilated, especially if, you know, each, each group is quite small, this community, especially this uh, in this kind of before the rise of the civilization period. Um, so you got to think about that, right? Um, these little communities interacting with each other is creating growth of larger communities, but extension of smaller ones that are not able to kind of um, protect themselves against these larger communities. So when we think about that, in many ways, as Egyptian civilization grew, those who were near their culture were required to join it, right? As, as it become more established, um, this, this is where kind of, as Egyptian culture gets more established, regions around it kind of have to go, okay, well, this is the military might of this region right beside us. We can't really do anything, so we're either going to join or else uh, we'll just get annihilated, right? Um, kind of like a terrible fact I'm sure you have to deal with if you just want peace, but there's a bully, you know, bully uh, in the civilization beside you. Um, so kind of this fact turns our focus to the pharaoh Narmer, who uh, in the missions within this first Age of Empires game during this uh, campaign, the Ascent of Egypt, um, uh, Narmer is featured in the farming mission. Um, and now if you look at Narmer, in many ways, his lifetime achievement um, of joining the upper and, lower, uh, upper and lower Egypt could be 
a whole campaign within itself, right? This one pharaoh, this one king's quest to join um, the upper and lower regions of Egypt um, into this unified kingdom, kind of marking the, the, the birth of a nation, of this nation, shall we say. Um, uh, you know, that's, that's something that could uh, go kind of across... Like, you could have campaign after campaign of a mission of this guy taking over, beating these smaller or larger communities, um, and then uh, kind of getting lower, up and lower Egypt combined be under his uh, military power. Um, and, you know, bef before I kind of continue on with that, um, if you take a look at an armor, we kind of want to know, like, how did this upper and lower Egypt appear, right? Because so far I've been talking about small villages interacting with each other. Well, it's exactly these previous small settlements slowly invading into each other uh, that gave rise to upper and lower Egypt. So these two um, two settlements, oh, sorry, yeah, the, all these small settlements, they start combining. The bigger ones win, the smaller ones lose. They get bigger and bigger and bigger, and eventually you got upper and lower Egypt. Um, so... This is kind of fascinating, right? Because sometimes we think about Egypt, we think about Greece, we think about Rome, and you just think of great civilizations that kind of like, oh, there must have been like a people that, you know, were there and they all decided one day, oh, okay, we're going to collectively group up and create it. Um, but the idea of Egypt and its creation of this larger culture was actually just smaller cultures joined together. And as uh, time went on and as settlements grew and as they fought against each other, um, this is kind of where we get that point, um, where we get that point of a larger Egyptian civilization. So, well, this kind of, I feel like this might be a good time for me to propose that um, an isolated culture would have a hard time growing, right? If you think about, like, is there a possibility for there to be a culture that just kind of grows naturally without interference to a larger one? Um, I think the truth is it would take significantly larger, a longer time for this culture uh, to develop in, into anything potent or bigger because it doesn't interact with other uh, populations, ideas, communities. Uh, so its population takes a long time to grow. Uh, and not only that, its technological revolution takes a lot longer as well. Um, so, you know, uh, and then let, let's even take about like, you know, why was it that there were so many communities? Why did people just not stick with the bigger communities? And that was probably because they're like, oh, well, let me just keep going kind of down the Nile River and finding areas where there aren't people and let me just settle there, right, in that in that gap period. Um, and so that's how kind of these small communities, small kingdoms would uh, increase and appear because people were like, okay, let me just keep going down this Nile River because we got space. And then when you start running out of space, that's when conflict arises. Uh, not only that, this whole uh, upper and lower Egypt uh, unification that's proposed under Narmer in the games becomes more complicated, as all ancient history is, since the farther away we are from that point in history, the less access we have to those materials, texts, and languages found within those cultures, right? Um, in many ways, the idea of a Rosetta Stone or something where um, because we know this language and we have a, trans, uh, a stone that translates this language's alphabet or pictogram or whatever use of language... Um, then we can figure out this other ancient language. And it's kind of like this, it's a continual ar archaeological dig, but also like um, people just trying to find out what certain text means, right? Which is just so vastly difficult when we're digging up things from 
like millennium millennia and millennia ago um so yeah let's take a look at this upper and lower um uh egypt which uh you know it, it seems like the popular scholarly opinion like the what, what's the most popular theory on how these um regions were were joined uh and i quote uh, was that the southern people of Upper Egypt conquered the northern people of Lower Egypt through military con- uh, conquest, end quote. So southern people of Upper Egypt conquered the northern people of Lower Egypt. And you're like, oh, that's so confusing. Like, why is Lower, you know, <laughs> why is Lower Egypt in the north and why is Upper Egypt in the south? And it's, it's once again going back to that uh, geography, right? where um, the Nile River, as it goes towards the Mediterranean, is getting lower, right? It's on lower ground. And while it's going away from the Mediterranean, it's getting into kind of more hills and more mountains, shall we say. Um, And because of that, the southern part is more upper because it's higher up. It's it's, it's higher up, like, away from sea level. And the lower region, the northern region that's closer to the Mediterranean, is then the lower uh yeah the northern region is the lower because it's lowered to the ground right uh there's less mountains there's less hills and it's uh closer to the sea level so that's kind of something we have to keep in mind um so with that kind of uh you know with with that kind of explanation done um did narmer this this pharaoh uh that's found within the age of empires game unifying the kingdoms as he does at the game and this kind of where um, you know, history gets tricky, right? Um, where there's some debate. Uh, so uh, we know it seems like everyone or a lot of historians will agree that Upper Egypt conquered uh, Lower Egypt. But Egyptian tradition uh, tends to view his son, so Narmer's son, King Menes, as the one who unified the two kingdoms, right? Um, uh, but this is also disputed because there's, however, an archaeological palette uh, palette that de- depicts Narmer with both the symbols of Lower and Upper Egypt, right? Um, so it's literally one archaeological palette. Like, a, uh, how would I describe this? It's like it's almost like a stone carved painting is maybe the best way um, for me to describe it. Uh, and it shows Narmer, presumably Narmer, uh, uh, with the symbol of Lower Egypt and Upper Egypt on it. Uh, so, uh, what I kind of want to do here is like, well, the tradition is that King Manus was the one that un- uh, unified it, right? In addition, tradition was the one who unified the upper and lower regions. Um, but then Narmer, because of this palette is presumed to be the one who actually, um, who actually was the one who, who unified these two regions. Uh, so this is kind of where we get that distinction with Age of Empires, right? Where... Uh, they're kind of proposing a very s- a simplistic and approach to make it just just quite easy to understand within the game's context because most people going into it just want a little bit of history and then they're ready to play the games, right? And it's kind of a way to experience kind of the history in a very, uh, in a fun way, right? Because you're, you're kind of bringing those RTS elements and then bringing the historical depth behind them. Uh, so to answer this, uh, I'll give you a theory that is a little simple, right? That's kind of an explanation how we can kind of mesh the idea of King Menes 
being traditionally thought of as the king who unified the kingdoms and King Narmer being found on this archaeological uh, palette as the unific uh, unificator of these two kingdoms. Um, so it's going to be a little more digestible, um, you know, and I like presenting it like this instead of kind of giving you every single theory because that kind of gets into historical bickering, which is uh, interesting for anyone who, who studies history, but maybe not so interesting for anyone who just wants to know a little bit more uh, about it. Uh, so the most popular f theory for our purposes then is that um, Narmer, this king that's used in the games, led the military conquest of Lower Egypt, while his son, Menes, was a charismatic leader that united the cultures of the South and North, solidifying the unification through marriage. Um, by the way, this is all a quote. Uh, through his marriage to Netahapte, the heir to the Southern Kingdom, Menes became the king of the South legally, which is why he is held up as a new unification king in tradition, end quote, right? So the prevailing theory kind of combines these two ideas. Dia is Narmer was a military kind of uh, military leader that took over Lower Egypt and Menes by marrying, uh, you know, um, the heir to the Southern Kingdom kind of really unified them politically and not just militarily, right? So kind of this this theory is actually really intriguing to me um, as, uh, you know, the Age of Empires game, maybe practically more than anything else, does not mention Menes, uh, nor does it complicate the history. And this makes sense as, you know, the goal of the creators of the Age of Empires is to create a history that is digestible, a starting point for uh then the ultimate definitive kind of reference point that you can get by studying historians and seeing what they think and stuff. Um, but it's definitely, it's, it's kind of like a hypothesis testing game that it's, it's very unclear as to who's going to be right. And you know, unless you get a time machine, but that that's always, uh, you know, not something that usually happens. Um, so, uh, Regardless of all these debates about kind of the nature of history that we find within the game, uh, Narmer we can kind of hold as the first to be heralded as the king, uh, pharaoh of Egypt, and establish a dynasty that would lead Egypt to be a vital point for all human development, conflict, and culture for the next, f you know, 4,000 probably years, right? If you if you look at it, um, you know, Egyptian influence kind of stays with the cultures that end up dominating it, right? Um it's mixed with the Greek culture. It's uh, Roman occupation. All those things still have Egypt as a great civilization that is taken into account. And, you know, there's even some mention of, like, the Romans in many ways, a lot of their food and re natural resources came from Egypt as well. So it's still vital uh, far, you know, past the, the, the kind of pharaohs that were um, not the non-Roman <laughs> non occupied pharaohs, shall we say. Uh, and kind of here, here's where I want to take this further, right? Uh, let's keep going through that campaign. Uh, and I just want to look at the last mission in the campaign. Uh, a mission where the game claims uh, the furthest expanse of the Egyptian Empire uh, with the Siege of Canaan in 1457 BCE, right? Another big skip, uh, 1,500 years. Um, this last mission takes place during the reign of Thutmose III, who made himself known as a brilliant strategist. Uh, Thutmose III marched with an army of 20,000 soldiers to Megiddo 
in modern-day northern Israel, a site better known by its Greek name, Armageddon, which is just awesome. Uh, a coalition of opponents uh, had gathered there. Uh, so, to quote, a coalition of opponents had gathered there outside the city. Scribes traveled with Thutmose III's forces and recorded the campaign's details, an invaluable chronicle now known as the Annals of Thutmose III. Uh, this is where the pharaoh defied his advisors and surprised his foes by surging through a treacherous mountain pass uh, he, to mount a deadly attack on Megiddo. He rode up, up front during the perilous advance to show that he trusts in the gods to protect him and his troops, and indeed, all made it through the pass and scathe. Then he entered the battle of Megiddo on a chariot of fine gold decked in shining armor, dazzling and intimidating his opponents who soon gave up the fight and retreated to the last bastion of safety within the walls. Samus III laid siege to Megiddo for seven months, mercilessly starving out its remaining inhabitants until they were surrendered. End quote. You know, in many ways, I, I found this right away to reflect the mission I played in the game um, as uh, there's treacherous terrain, there's encampments kind of on cliffs, uh, and there's a, there's a, well, I use, end up using a lot of chariots. Um, so, this, in some ways, I kind of felt was the most personal mission within the campaign because you have a ruler and have a specific objective. Well, I think at times when you look you look at the earlier missions of the campaign, it's very more general. It's like, oh, this was like a part of a thing, and this is like, no, this is a specific strategic advance. Um, uh, and kind of, you know, Thutmose's ultimate success, uh, you know, when, when you're kind of looking at it historically, was... Uh, money that enriched you know egypt's treasury um and also he would capture the sons of those uh he conquered and educate them in egypt and then they would become sympathetic to egypt further kind of growing egypt's culture and military expanse um so overall you know if you're to take this take a look at this kind of last mission at that most where once again we kind of go from uh historically we go from Okay, we're starting building up the Nile, and then we go to, okay, this is the first pharaoh, Narmer, and his son, Menes, who kind of conquered and unified uh, Upper and Lower Egypt, to Thutmose, who's like, okay, we're we're going to expand Egypt as much as we can militarily, right? We're going to win campaign after campaign. Um, and this is kind of how the, this whole campaign is structured. So from a historical perspective, you know, I think... I think a big thing that I have to contend with is the fact that ultimately there's just not enough time for the campaign to develop the history that's found within it, right? It is touching upon points and major ideas, but it's it's kind of sometimes it feels more like a uh, index or a gloss. Oh, no, not a glossary, but more like an index, um, a table contents of Egyptian history as opposed to kind of really diving in to the history itself, right? Um, you know, Thutmose III, I think, is a good closing point because uh, it shows the creation of Egypt, it shows its rise. But, you know, ultimately the history we spoke about today is only barely scratching the surface of Egyptian culture and ancient civilization. Um, so... Uh, the truth of the matter is that the history of ancient Egypt could be, you know, a single game within itself, right? Uh, where, where like, every campaign 
could be one pharaoh, right? And you could go through pharaoh to pharaoh to pharaoh. Like that's how vast, um, you know, this history could be. Um, and instead, you just get a glimpse of each pharaoh, and it doesn't feel as personal. And at least from what I remember, the Age of Empires two campaign, as personal as you can make it, obviously with the RTS genre, which I think the one thing it struggles with is you're always strategic military leader, but you're you're kind of from the viewpoint, um, from the kind of the eagle eye viewpoint. It's hard to make it personal, but at the very least with Age of Empires 2, um, there are historical people they attach to each campaign to. Um, and these ones is like you got a massive civilization that spans thousands of years and you have to um, attach historical ideas to it, um, which makes it less personal, which makes the campaign ultimately have to survive on the strength of the mission you're currently doing and the mechanics and the gameplay um, as opposed to what I think it could do is kind of further expand personal stories that um, you know maybe like all of th this like thought most of the thirds missions which, which is just such a hard kind of balance for a developer right to incorporate all this vast history which like you know, we've, we've, uh, this whole episode, we've been talking about it and I could probably spend an hour, um, you know, thoroughly researching everything there is to know about the settlement of the Nile, right? And have, <laughs> have a whole podcast that just goes over that. Um, and then, you know, and, and then do a full one on just Narmer and men as in all their campaigns and the culture and, you know, the artifacts that we find from that time and the archaeological evidence, right? Um, and so this is always something that they have to contend with as a developer, um, you know, and I'm going to kind of leave you with this, uh, that, that there's so much to explore. Um, and I think... I think one of the struggles that I will have uh, as we continue this podcast is looking uh, at ways to kind of lay out lay out important things that I can gather from a civilization when I only have an hour, you know, or or less, shall we say? Uh, especially now in the beginning, I'm sure I'm sure as we continue, it'll probably grow longer. But to to gather as much as I can and fill it you know, fill all that information within a short period of time um, to make it impactful, meaningful, and rememberable. And that's probably the last word. Uh, you know, the ability for you to remember something and take something out of this will be very difficult when you have so much, you know, such vast time um, to explore. Uh, so ultimately, um, I'd like to say that uh, I hope you've learned something new um, or, you know, uh, during this podcast, or at the very least, kind of got a glimpse into that history uh, that's found behind the Age of Empire game. And with that, I bid the Ascent of Egypt campaign and its history goodbye.